Welcome, my name is Paul Reese, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Charlotte Chapel. Well, what are the, the two big stories that seem to have dominated uh, the headlines for about a year now? Brexit and Trump. Brexit and Trump. Um, I, I don't know about you, I'm getting a bit fed up of it all. But have you noticed that, that there is actually one story that can compete with these two stories? And it is the news of a famous celebrity who has died. Have you noticed that? It's the one thing that can push through the Brexit and Trump news fog. Uh, one day this past week, it was the death of Tara Palmer Tompkinson, the it girl. No one's quite sure why she's famous particularly, but she was. And she died of a brain tumor, sadly, at the age of 45. And that made the front pages. The same thing happened back in December with George Michael, the singer, didn't it? <coughs> And social media pronounced in that 2016 was the worst year ever because of all the celebrity deaths, people like David Bowie and, and Prince. It lacked a bit of a historical dimension, being as in 1917 we lost hundreds of thousands, millions in fact, in the First World War. But anyway, 2016 was the worst year because of all the celebrity deaths. Now why, why does it that, the, that, that this grabs the headlines in the news? Is it because kind of death rudely reminds us all that it doesn't matter how beautiful you are, it doesn't matter how talented you are, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, we are powerless to prevent death from knocking on our door. Is it that? And what happens after that? Is that it? Game over. Our body decays and disintegrates, and there's nothing. I mean, that's what atheists would say. Uh, there is only the material world. We're here by a cosmic accident, and there's really no meaning or purpose to life. And what if death is not the end? What if the good book is right when it says that after death we meet our maker? <coughs> And that there is a day when we will have to give an account for our lives before God our judge. And then what follows after that? It seems that the celebrity death kind of punches through the distraction of our entertainment culture to remind us that life is short, it's uncertain, and it ends too quickly. And it raises lots of big questions. Is there such a thing as eternal life? Is there hope in the face of death? Is there life beyond death? Is there a way to get past a, a day of judgment to a, to a blessed, everlasting life in relationship with God? How do you get eternal life? Now that's exactly the question that a young man asked Jesus. And I want you to open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 19. And if you have a church Bible, you'll find that on page 986. Page 986. Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to read from verses 16 to the end of that chapter. Now as I read this, please do notice... 
the reaction of the disciples to what they see and hear Jesus say here. Because it leads them to, to say something with great astonishment. They say, who then can be saved? Notice that as we go through this. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And love your neighbor as yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We've left everything to follow you. What, what then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit, also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Now please keep your Bibles open as we work through this part of God's words. Why are the disciples so gobsmacked? Well, because this man has got nearly everything going for him. Did you notice that? He's clearly a great bloke. He's the sort of man uh, parents would be thrilled if he showed some interest in their daughter. He's young. He's very wealthy. He's highly moral. He's religious. He knows his Bible. He's tried to live a sort of a decent moral sort of life. He's got nearly everything. But there's one thing that he's still lacking. And what's that? What is he lacking? He's not Welsh. 
That's the point my friend Dano says. It was too good not to say it. No, no, it's not actually that particular thing. Fair play, it's a good thing to be Welsh, but it's not the main thing that he's lacking here. His question reveals what he is lacking. Look at the question there in verse 16. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Think about that question. Here is a successful young man. He's pretty confident, isn't he, of, of the fact that he could achieve things based on his past record of, obe of obedience, and yet he lacks assurance. What good thing must I do? He's not sure that he has done enough. That's the problem when you think you can earn eternal life. Uh, like a salesman who doesn't know what the sales target is, how do you know when you've done enough? Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? That's the question. But I think it's fascinating here to see the way that Jesus replies. It is totally different to what we would expect. What Jesus does here is brilliant. He is trying to let this man see what the real issue is going on in his heart. To get this man to honestly reflect on what it means, uh, what, what he really means and what's really driving him as a person. And there's kind of three surprising replies that Jesus gives to help this man understand his spiritual heart condition. Let's briefly consider them. Firstly, verse 17, Jesus rocks him back. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. Now I think this starts to undermine his confidence about his own abilities. His assumption is that there's a good thing that he could do to obtain eternal life. And the problem with that is it puts the good category on the wrong side of the human-God divide. He's putting goodness on the human side of the equation. But in truth, it can only be put on the God side. There's only one who is good, and that is God. His assumptions forget that we as sinful human beings can never accrue enough good points to earn our way into eternal life. Now on the first reading, it can seem as if Jesus is actually teaching that it is possible to get in by keeping the commandments. Look what he says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. But I want you to see that what Jesus is doing here is he's holding up the mirror of God's law to this young man to help him see that his moral achievements are not enough. But if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he asks? He's up for it, isn't he? He's quite confident. He's got a great track record. Which ones? And Jesus replies, verse 18, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now this is quite subtle, I think. But Jesus is being a skilled counselor, and he's trying to guide this man to be able to see his real problem. Now, if you've studied the Bible a bit, and this young man clearly has, what would you have noticed? Well, Jesus only quotes five of the commandments, and famously there are how many? Ten. 
And there are two main parts of the Ten Commandments. Uh, it was read to us a little bit earlier in the service. The, the second part all has to do with how we treat other people. And so, Joe, and so Jesus quotes those commandments, the ones that are more visibly clear whether you've kept them or not. And so he can say to Jesus, look, all these I've kept. And I think this is what a lot of lovely people in Edinburgh might also say if they ever were asked to comment on whether they think they're good or not. Well, I've not murdered anyone. I haven't cheated on my spouse. I've not stolen things. I've been good to my mother and father. I've never perjured myself in in a court of law. I'm a good person. I don't need Christianity to be good. I don't need church to be moral. Is that not what many people would say in Edinburgh? But before we start patting ourselves on our own backs and giving ourselves awards for our moral goodness, we need to notice what Jesus omits. He omits the final commandment, the tenth, that speaks to our internal desires. Do not covet. Was that part of this man's problem? We don't know, but it is for most of us, let's be honest. And notice too that in the place of quoting the tenth commandment, Jesus kind of gives a great summary statement for the second part of the Ten Commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a catch-all way of summarizing the second part of the commandments. So what's the big thing that Jesus has missed out? What's the great summary statement of of the first part of the commandments? It's this, to love God. Uh, When Jesus uh, was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He replies this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind. That's the first part. And this this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, he says. So Jesus admits that first part about loving God. And specifically, what's number one in the list? You shall have no other gods before God. Me. And I think that Jesus is subtly trying to get this man to think about all the commandments. But this man's not quite getting it. I think this is the bit that most people in Edinburgh don't get. Moral, decent people, but who live with no regard to God. And what we do is we make for ourselves other gods that we worship with our lives. We, we find other things that give us meaning and direction. We make sacrifices for them. They're the number one thing. When we've got them, when we're happy, when we, uh, we're happy, when we don't have them, we're miserable because that's what we live for. We find our meaning and identity in things other than God himself. And we are blind to the fact that, it, well, it doesn't seem to be a big deal to us that we live that way, that we ignore and reject the very God who made us and sustained us. People, I would say, in the street are generally agnostic rather than atheist. And they think to themselves, well, you know, if God is actually there, if he ever would bother considering me, um, then I'm sure they could see I'm a good bloke. I'm a good lady. And I don't deserve, I don't deserve hell. I deserve eternal life because I'm a good person. I give blood. I I do lots of good things. I do charitable things. 
And so at funerals of people who have shown not the slightest interest in God or the things of God, you'll hear friends saying how the deceased is, is now looking down at them from heaven and other such sentiments because we're quite confident that we're all basically good and that's fine with God. But of course, to break the, the first and greatest commandment, to have no other gods before him, means that we're clearly under God's judgment. Under his condemnation. We are lawbreakers. It, it, it's, it's not pick the best five out of ten. We've broken the first one. It's the biggest one. And we clearly do not deserve eternal life. But for all his morality, this man does have the sense that he's missing something, doesn't he? Because he says... What do I still lack? There's a lurking fear. There's still something missing. What do I still lack? To which Jesus gives, I think, this completely surprising answer. If someone asks me, how do they get saved? I've never given this answer yet. But Jesus gives this answer. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. What do you think about that? With some relief, people have noted that this is the only time Jesus tells a person to do this, to sell all that they've got and give it away. But hopefully now you can see what Jesus is doing. He's putting his finger on the, on the one thing this man worshipped in the place of God. His wealth. If he genuinely wants eternal life, then he needs to get rid of the thing that he most loved and trusted above God. And then Jesus says, follow and trust Jesus. Ultimately, this is the one thing he lacked. This is the one thing that is essential, really, for any of us to receive eternal life. Being moral is not enough. Being religious is not enough. Being decent and polite is not enough. We need Jesus. Jesus is the only person who ever lived who fully obeyed all the Ten Commandments of God. And at this point in Matthew's account, he's heading towards Jerusalem. Whereas we sang earlier, he would die upon a cross to pay the penalty for sinners who've broken the Ten Commandments to make forgiveness possible. He was going to the cross to pay the price so that all who trust Jesus as their Savior can receive eternal life as a gift, as a gift of God's grace. You know, the, the merely selling your goods and living a simple life and not following Jesus is not going to get us right with God. What's going to, who's going to deal with our sin? How are we going to get forgiveness? And while the specific advice for this man is not necessary for all people, the principle is this, and it's true for everybody. We're all called to place nothing above our loyalty and our worship 
and our dependence upon God. Nothing should be in the place of God in our lives. Anything that is, is, is another God that we've made an idol that must go. And you know what? If that is money, then perhaps we might well be served by giving away more of our money and showing it's not an idol. But maybe it's success. Maybe you work all those long hours because you're craving to become a partner or craving to, to kind of step up and get a higher paycheck. And that's what drives your life. That's what you're about. Or maybe it's the need to, to it's not so much the money, it's the, it's the sense of approval, of recognition that you long for. That's the number one thing in your life. Or maybe it's a relationship. You know, you live for this person. Maybe it's our religious moral achievements. Our proud commitment to some spirituality or, or our own good works. And we say to ourselves, well, yes, I'm good enough for God. That's, 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 I, don't need, I don't need Jesus. I, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm better than Jesus. I don't need Jesus. My, my friends, how ridiculous. Anything in the place of God, anything that neglects the incredible cost and provision that had to be made to deal with our sin is utterly tragic. The only way forward is to remove the idol in order to follow and depend solely upon Jesus. What an incredible invitation from Jesus he offers this man. Throw away your possessions, Jesus says, and I will be your possession. What do you think of that swap? Throw away your possessions and I will be your possession. What do you think of that swap? For this young man, he doesn't, he doesn't go, oh, fantastic, great deal, and joyfully sell all he has so he can come and follow Jesus. No, he goes away sad. Why is that? Well, the verse just simply says he had great wealth, great possessions. He loved his wealth more than he loved the thought of having Jesus. I think that is utterly tragic. He nearly had everything except the one thing that really mattered, Jesus. And instead of leaving his possessions, he leaves Jesus. He walks away from the kingdom of God. He walks away from eternal life. So he can have his land. And his money until he dies. How tragic. And as he does, Jesus turns to his disappointed disciples. No doubt they were excited. Gosh, we've got a big backer here. This would be great if he's on the team. Wealthy guy. This is going to be good, Jesus. We're going to stay in better motels as we walk around Israel. They couldn't believe it. He walks away. <coughs> And then Jesus says something that absolutely gobsmacks them. Verse 23, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. All that stuff you've heard about a little gate in Jerusalem where camels could squeeze through is rubbish. There's no, there was no such gate. This is a joke. The camel's the biggest thing that they had, and the, uh, the aperture of a little needle was about the smallest thing they could imagine. No, a camel does not go through the eye of a needle. Why are they astonished? Well, for them, wealth was a sign of God's blessing. Isn't that why Abraham became so wealthy, uh, the patriarch Abraham? 
But Jesus points out here that there's great disadvantages to wealth. See, when we're wealthy, there's a great danger of believing that we're self-reliance. We can, no worry, I've got to, I, I can pay for it. I've got it covered. It's stolen. No worry, I'll replace it. The car gets bumped. No worry, I'll just get a new one. Everything's sorted with money. And the, wealth, and the problem with wealth is that we think we are self-reliant. And we can look to our money for security, to look to our money for identity rather than God. And if you are here last week, you'll remember how Jesus uh, says that we need to become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you can only enter by realizing that you are needy and dependent, then wealth can be a terrible hindrance. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, if you had a blender, I suppose you could get it through eventually. Well, this just blows the disciples' fuse box, doesn't it? And they finally ask a really good question. Who then can be saved? If this moral, religious, wealthy man doesn't get to enter into the kingdom of God, then what does that mean? That means actually there's, there's no hope for anyone. As they look at it, all their human effort to get right with God was futile and useless. And they're shaken out of any self-confidence. And so they ask this, this question, great question, who then can be saved? And I wonder today, have, have you got to the point of asking that question? of realizing that there's nothing that you can personally achieve or earn to be saved? Have we come to see how pitifully limited and pathetic our moral achievements are before a holy God? Have we come to see how grossly offensive to God our idolatry is when we put other things, stuff that he has made, in the place of God? When we're willing to face up to this, when we begin to see our spiritual poverty, when we begin to see our impotence to save ourselves, then verse 26 is a magnificent verse of hope. And Jesus fixes his disciples with his eyes upon them with utmost seriousness, says this, with man, it, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Our hope of salvation rests not with man, ourselves. It rests totally upon God. There is a God who can do great miracles. There is a God who can save unlikely people. There's hope for the irreligious and immoral who trust Christ. Do you know what? Even more incredibly, there's hope for the self-righteous, religious, wealthy, middle-class person. There's hope even for them when they first begin to realize 
their bankruptcy before God. And how does anyone ever come to see that? It becomes because of a great act of God's mercy and God's grace when he opens their eyes to see the emptiness of their moral achievements and their utter hopelessness. And then they begin to see for the first time, Jesus is the answer. He's the savior. He's come to save sinners. And I found out I really am a sinner. God is able to do the impossible and save even rich, wealthy, self-righteous, proud people. That's such good news. Let's stop and consider uh, from last week and this week uh, the answer to the question, how do we enter the kingdom of God? I think the little children do go with this section. They're a complete contrast to the, to the rich man. And uh, there's three things we learn from that combined section. First of all, how do we enter? Well, first of all, we need to receive it like a child in complete dependence upon God. That's what we learned from the children in verses 13 to 15. Secondly, we need to leave behind our idols and self-reliance. And thirdly, We need to follow Jesus who blesses extravagantly. Because Peter's reaction in verse 28 is very human, isn't it? There are probably moments in every follower of Christ when we wonder whether the sacrifices we've made have been worth it. And I don't know, maybe you're here today and that's how you're feeling. We've left everything to follow you, Peter says. What then will there be for us? And Jesus gives them and us a wonderful reassurance that puts all sacrifices into perspective. Who does Jesus think he is? Well, look at verse 28. It is quite extraordinary. Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit in 12 thrones. Who does Jesus think he is? He is the glorious Son of Man who will return one day and everything is going to be renewed. And he will sit on a glorious throne. He sees himself as the King of all kings. The one who has the right to rule over all the earth, over all the universe, over all of God's creation. And he says, do you know what? At the moment, you may have breakdowns and people, you may have to walk away from family and, 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 and stuff and houses and property for my sake. But you know, on that day, it will be totally worth it. Jesus does not just promise 100% back, does he? A hundred fold back. That is absolutely extravagant. And eternal life. There can be real sacrifices to following Christ. It does hold some people back as they consider the, the way it might damage their relationships with those that they love because they'll misunderstand and, they'll, and they may not like me anymore. That holds many people back. And maybe when the Lord Jesus calls us to do different things and we walk away and we think, gosh, I've given up things. Is it going to be worth it? It will be totally worth it. 
And we begin to experience some of these blessings, even in this life. I, I can, you know, I've had the privilege of visiting Australia, America, Canada, Wales, brilliant place, Scotland, England, Pakistan, India, France, Papua New Guinea, Spain. Let me tell you, everywhere I have gone, people's homes have been open to me. People have fed me. People have treated me like family. And complete strangers have become brothers and sisters, all because of our common faith in Jesus Christ. It's going to be totally worth it. In fact, in this life, it may seem as if we're the last and the least. But on the renewal of all things, when he sits on his glorious throne, the first will be last. How do you get eternal life? You need to receive it like a child. You can't earn it. It's a gift. It's a gift of God's grace. You need to leave behind your idols that you are living for and worshipping that are rivals to God. Things that you rely upon in the place of God. Thirdly, you need to follow Jesus Christ. Rely on his death and resurrection. Live with him as your king because he will be the king of all kings and be seen to be so on that final day. And all of that happens because God is at work in our salvation. It's not uncommon that people start coming to church because they think, well, I've got children and I want them to learn. and I, uh, I, I'm fine, but it'll be good for the kids, you know. And then as they come week in and week out, they start listening and realizing, no, actually, this is for me. It's the God's word exposes their hearts. They begin to see... Yeah, their sin. They begin to see their need. And if you're here today and that's part of your story, that's what's going on with you, let me tell you, God is at work in this. And what you need to do today is to follow Christ. What is holding you back from following Jesus? As the celebrity deaths hit the headlines... Remember, all that fame, all that money, all that being good-looking thing, it means absolutely nothing when death knocks at your door. And what will mean everything is to know that Jesus is your King, He is your Savior. And if that is not true of you today, call on Him. Turn to him in prayer. Ask him to forgive you for for the sins and messes of the past. Ask him to forgive you for living for other stuff in the place of him. Ask him to forgive you and cleanse you and, and change you so that you will live with him as the boss of your life. And if you need some help to do that, there's going to be some folk at the front who'd be happy to pray with you or speak to me or anyone on the pastoral team, one of the elders. We'd be delighted to help you. And my Christian friends, every sacrifice will be worth it. Jesus will come again. He will renew all things and reign over all things and it will be a day of great rejoicing.
Let's pray. In Philippians it says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that that day will come when our eyes will see you and you will be the Son of Man who sits on your glorious throne. Father, help us to keep following your Son. Father, for any who don't know that and lack that assurance, would you cause them this day to turn to you, to call out, that they too may have assurance of their salvation. Father, we thank you that in having Christ, we have everything. Father, grant us the joy of believing these truths this day in his name. Amen.